You take your Bibles and open up to Revelation chapter 11 with me. Revelation chapter 11, we're going to look at verse 15 through 19, and we are in a short enough section that uh, we can actually read it together, so it's kind of nice. Well, as you're turning there, uh, just a word of thank you uh, for those who were praying for the men that were able to get out to Shepherd's Conference. Uh, for those who don't know, is a pastor's conference at Grace Community Church in California. So uh, someone's asking me how many times I'd been, and I had to do the math, um, and I think this was 13. Uh, so it wasn't my first rodeo, uh, but it is a blessing to, to be there. My first one was 2006. I skipped a few when I first moved back, um, but it's Great to be around old friends. Uh, greetings from Ruben Videra, who is a missionary we support through the Master's Academy International, who teaches in pastors in Lyon, Spain. He teaches at Berea Bible uh, Seminary there and is training past- uh, pastors uh, there in Spain. And even um, they have some pastors that come over through Portugal and some other nations as well. It's great to see him. Uh, For those, a couple of us were able to go early on Tuesday, which was the missions conference for them. So got to see a lot of those missionaries. Got to speak with some missionaries I stayed with in Ukraine. Hear a little bit about uh, ministry there, obviously with the struggles with the war and and different things. But neat to hear how the Lord's using them. And they could easily come home. um, Nothing stopping them from being in America, but that's where they want to be, and that's where they want to minister. Particularly one missionary, Greg White, who I got to speak with. Um, I stayed with him when I was in uh, Kiev in 2009, and he's been in Ukraine for 30 years, and just has a heart for them, and is just amazed that I think the fruit of a long-standing ministry and the trust that he's built, and even that he's been able to stay and minister through even difficult and, and suffering. So it was a great encouraging time. I just be around fellow pastors and uh, for me friends and I just be with some people at church as well. So thank you. And it was just a blessing to be there. But let's look together here at Revelation chapter 11. Let me read verse 15 through verse 19. And then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your rage came, and the time came for the dead to be judged and to give reward to your slaves, the prophets and saints, those who fear your name the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the sanctuary of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his sanctuary, and there were flashes of lightning, and sounds and peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. Father, we do come now as we turn our attention to your revelation to us, as we look even as you revealed these visions to the Apostle John, given to the seven churches and by extension inspired by you for all of the churches throughout the church age to know what will happen, to know where the story is headed. And it is headed, as we see this morning, that you will establish your reign forever 
endeavor. Lord, we rejoice in that truth as we look forward to our study this morning. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen. You may have read a book that you loved or watched a movie that you were entertained by and got to the end of that book like I have before or got to the end of a trilogy or a series and had a sense of sadness. I don't know if you've been there before. I remember when all the movies came out for Lord of the Rings and I was into them so much so that I went and read the books. And I can remember finishing the third book and I had been kind of devouring, staying up till 2, 3 a.m. reading these books. And there was a certain sadness that just came over me as I finished the book. Because I almost wanted to go back to the beginning. And I'll be honest, my favorite is the first book. And the reason everyone likes the third movie a lot or the third book. And the, the king returns, which that'll fit well with Revelation. But it is in the first book that the adventure begins. And you just don't know what's going to happen. And there's an expectation. And I missed it. When I thought, that's it. It's over. The author's dead. There's no more of these coming out. The story's over. As you look at the the story of Scripture and really the story of this world, that's not going to be the case. There's a human element to where we come to the end because that story and that ending, perhaps fictional or even perhaps historical, say the end of uh, the Second World War of, of joy, but it's only a shadow. It's only a joy of something beginning and something ending or something good coming out. The hero surviving or the battle being won. But when it's this story, as we see throughout Revelation, of Christ the worthy lamb taking back what is rightfully his, there will be no sadness. There's not going to be a moment where you go, oh, I wish there was more. No, you'll have full and final fulfillment and excitement as you look forward, not to looking at the end, but what we've longed for, which is the beginning of this reign. And in that way, we encounter what we encounter throughout Scripture, which is there's a sense in which, of course, the Lord is sovereign. It's emphasized over and over and over again throughout all of Scripture. He is in control. Yet there is a reality that he is not reigning on this earth from David's literal throne. But it's very clear the story is headed to that reality where you will see him reign from Jerusalem, from David's throne. And that is where we find ourselves here in Revelation chapter 11. And it might feel as though, well, Josh, we're in chapter 12. And there's 10 more chapters, or 11, but, you know, about to go to chapter 12. And we're only halfway through. We're almost to finish the first 11. There's 11 more to go. How are we at the end? Well, that's going to be helpful, I think, as we walk through this, because we're going to get to the end of 11, which is going to be the halfway point of the book of Revelation. And then 12, 13, and 14 are going to pull us back. And it's going to look at the perspective of this second half of the tribulation. It's going to see it from not God's perspective, but from Satan's perspective. And that'll be where 12, 13, and 14. But this is fast forwarding. This is towards the seventh trumpet being blown. And then in 15 and 16, we're going to see that this trumpet is going to contain judgments called the seven bowls, which are going to be described in chapter 16. And so that'll give you hopefully a little bit of framework. We're in the middle of the book. This is the seventh trumpet blowing at the very end. 
And it, just like the seven seals contained the seven, the seventh seal contained the seven trumpets, the seventh trumpet will contain those seven bowls of judgment in chapter 16. It's a reminder of what is going on in Revelation. Revelation chapter 1 verse 7, that behold, he, that is Jesus, is coming with clouds and every eye will see him and every, and even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Jesus is returning differently than his first coming, born in a manger, born a humble king. He's coming to reign, coming in judgment and specifically to do what? He's coming to set up his kingdom forever and ever. And so we understood he's returning in judgment and there's a focus there. And, and I, I kind of appreciate that. We're halfway through the book, we get to see the end and fast forward to Revelation 20, 21, 22, because it's a reprieve from the darkness really of 12, 13, and 14, which is, is still yet before us in our study because we have seen in chapter 1 the things which have, John says, that write down the things which you have seen and the things that are, are which chapter 2 and 3 describe those seven churches. And now, of course, we are in the things that take place after these things, starting in chapter 4. The seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls. But this morning, we get to sit back and we get to celebrate. We get to rejoice. We get to find a statement on the end and the celebration of the victory of Christ where he will reign in heaven. Sounds with a loud voice praising God and the church falls on their knees as described as the 24 elders. And they are going to praise him because he is worthy. And yes, he was worthy before, but they get to see this action in time and in history in this unique way. Next week, the shift focuses, but for now, we get a focus on the reign of Christ, that he will reign forever and ever. And what you need to know about the reign from these few verses, it's only four verses, is you're going to need to know three things. You're going to need to know the certainty of the reign of Christ. You're going to need to know that Ceremony, as we're going to call it, of the reign of Christ. And we're going to see the covenant. So the certainty, the ceremony, and the covenant. The first of these is we're going to see here in verse 15 that the question of the reign of Christ is not a question of if. It is only a matter of when it will happen. It is an absolute certainty. And it's not only certain, but it is characterized as an eternal reign that is forever and ever. The seventh angel sounded here in verse 15, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, and that's very descriptive of heaven. We saw that in four and five. Heaven seems to be a very loud place, or at least it appears from John's perspective as loud. And those loud voices proclaim, quote, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. This idea of kingdom is from the very beginning of Scripture all the way through. If you want to talk about the big picture, if you want to talk about not just what is Revelation about, what all of Scripture is about, 
kingdom is as good as a word that can encompass it all. This is the return of the rightful king. Adam and Eve were given a job to do. And they failed. But the second Adam is going to take back and please and be perfectly faithful to the Father and rule and reign perfectly in a way that Adam never could have, but that only Christ can, who is worthy. And so kingdom is a concept which we're not going to do it this morning. Uh, We might at some point in Revelation pull the car over and really look at kingdom and see all these ways Because even in Revelation, you see, or even in the Old Testament, you see that picture of it's not just a future priest who can make a eternal sacrifice for us, but it is a future king that we look forward to that is going to reign. If you flip over to the end, because that's really where we are, Revelation 22. So if you want to, you can turn with me there. Because that's like I said, we are at the seventh trumpet, which is going to now contain the seven bowls. And so some people think of this as the last half of the last year of the great tribulation. I'm not sure if we, we can know exactly timing wise. But when that seventh trumpet blows, it is this final woe that is going to be unleashed. We don't see it here as much as the celebration that is coming out of heaven, that he will reign forever. But chapter 16 will describe the horrific judgments that come with this blowing of the seventh trumpet. But in 22, it says, Then he showed me a river. So John is seeing a river of the water of life, bright as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Someone asked me, what about the 12 kinds of fruit? And I said, I don't know. I haven't studied 22 yet. So ask me when I get there, when I preach it. But three, there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his slaves will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will have no need of light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. It's an interesting turn, even that there is reigning with Christ. And so this is as exciting and as pinnacle as it gets as we come and see out of heaven this idea of the one who has come who will not reign temporarily. He is not going to be like Solomon who was able to unite uh, the kingdoms and have this prosperous short reign relative to eternity. Because of course Solomon ultimately, yes, son of David, but sinful and ultimately judged. And the kingdom split after his death. And most problematic of all, if 2 Samuel 7, that there is a promise that David will have a son on his throne forever, Solomon is just like you and me, which is he dies. But there's one who comes who is raised from the dead, who is eternal, who lives forever. And so that storyline of who will sit on that throne forever and ever, this is where it finds its culmination. It is Christ who will reign there forever and ever, just as it says in Revelation chapter 22. And not only there do you see that kingdom thread, or do you see that, but 
We've seen multiple times from the prophets like Daniel chapter 7 that to the one, to the Messiah, to Jesus, to him was given dominion, glory, and kingdom. That all the people's nations and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. It's certain. It is eternal. Similarly, if you go to Luke chapter 1, the announcement of his birth, he didn't come on the white horse to give judgment, which we're thankful for, because he was there to fulfill different aspects of his coming. And we're thankful because we're the beneficiaries of that. But it is interesting, even from the beginning, the announcement from this angel Gabriel, it is understood what he will be and what he will do one day. And it says that now in the sixth month, this is verse 26 of Luke 1, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city to Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement. I was pondering what kind of greeting this was. And the angel says to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will have Uh, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob for how long? Forever. And there will be no end of his kingdom. You imagine on the human aspect of this, whether this— has to stick with Mary and says elsewhere, you know, that she hid these things in her heart. Uh, she's sitting and watching Christ crucified, clinging to this promise that I may not understand how this is going to work out, but clinging to this is the promise Gabriel made that he will sit on the throne forever and there will be no end of his kingdom. It's not a matter of necessarily, it's not a matter of if. It's just a matter of when this will take place. What's currently going on in the world today is different. It's not to say he's any less sovereign because even he's so sovereign that even Satan can't go down to that pit we saw earlier and open it without being given the rights by being given the key. Currently, Satan is the ruler of this world. Three times in the Gospel of John, John 12, 31, John 14, 30, and 16, 11, you see that Satan is described as the ruler of this world. If you go to First Peter, just close to a few books back from Revelation, you see that he's described in chapter 5. As he ends his book, as he looks at the believer and how we should behave and conduct ourselves in the midst of difficult and suffering, some of his Final parting words are to be sober, which of course is contrasted with being drunk. That is, be in your right mind. Be of sober spirit. Be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in the faith, 
knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished among your brethren who are in the world. Stand firm. You are in Christ. You have access to all the riches and the glories. Resist the devil. But it is to say, the contrast is he is not reigning in this way today, but he will one day. Doesn't mean he's any less in control, but it is something to then look forward to into the future. And then when it happens in history, all of, his, all of heaven is going to explode and say, he will reign forever. It's interesting. Um, at the moment, there's always been various views of how to understand the book of Revelation and how to look at the millennial reign of Revelation chapter 20. But uh, one of the views would be um, that I subscribe to that we, it's in the future, right? I would be pre-millennial that I think Christ will return before the millennium and I think he'll reign for a thousand years as described in Revelation 20. There's also a view called post-millennialism, which is Christ returns at the end of the millennium. But one of the interesting consequences of that is when you get to Revelation chapter 20, the very first thing that happens is Satan is bound in Revelation 20. That's how you get the millennial reign. That's how you get um, Christ reigning and and the earth being, um, Satan's not out there doing his work in people's hearts. And one day he will be released at the end of that thousand years, which we're going to see. But to view Christ as coming post-millennium, that is coming post-Revelation chapter 20, Two consequences are, one, Satan is currently bound, which I don't think goes well with John being the ruler of this, being the ruler of this world, uh, the principalities in Ephesians, or in 1 Peter chapter 5, that he's clearly prowling and going about. I don't think it matches the world. But it also means that this is the millennium. And without going into too much detail, go read Isaiah. And I think the millennial passage is Isaiah. And I... I think my eyes work just fine, and I, I don't see this as matching one-to-one with the millennium at all. Um, the world that we live in. No, we live in a world where Satan is not bound. But that is future, and one day it will happen. And one day all of heaven will shout in that way that it will come. We've seen over and over again, why does Christ wait? Why not now? Well, that's what the martyrs have said. How long, O Lord? And you might say the same thing. I think it's okay that your heart aches and yearns to say, how long? That's okay. Just trust the Lord that in his perfect timing, he has more of his own in whom that he is going to save. But we can be certain, we can take it to the bank that one day he will come back. One day when he does, he will reign. And at that moment, it's not ever going backwards. He will reign from that point forward in that manner over all. He'll take back what is rightfully his and he will reign forever. John wrote this. Also, when you get to 21 and 22 towards the end of the book, he is just like a lot of books. All of a sudden, what he said in the beginning shows up in the end. There's a blessing that comes from those who not only read, but those who obey the book of Revelation. The impact of this future event is intended to have real implications for today. That we know he'll both hand out judgment and he'll hand out, as we'll see, not just judgment, but reward. As I said, this is a nice reprieve. 
This is rejoicing in heaven. People getting rewarded before we have to slide back into the dragon in chapter 12. And that happens as I think of it this way in a picture of it. My picture of it is of a ceremony. And so you see the certainty of Jesus' reign. But what else about Jesus' reign is highlighted here is that there is a ceremony. And by that I simply mean that there are things that happen where it seems they are, people are judged and people are rewarded. Look at verse 16. He said, in the 24 elders, which we identified as the church in heaven from the earlier in the book, who sit on their thrones before God, fell on their face, faces and worshiped God, which is what the 24 elders, what the church always does. But they say this, we give thanks, verse 17, O Lord, God the Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Which implies this is a unique point. Reigning literally from a throne on the earth in a unique way. I had a good friend who always critiqued me. One of, uh, I'm sure I have many little um, filler words. In Nebraska, literally is one of them. And eventually he yelled at me and said, everything can't be literally this, literally that. This is one of those cases where it's appropriate. He's going to literally reign is appropriate. So I'm defending myself in my mind and my friend. It's like, no, this is appropriate. It's not just a filler word. He will literally reign from a literal throne. And the nations, what about them? Well, they're enraged. Why? Because Babylon is destroyed. They don't get to live their own way any longer. They had freedom, at least in a sense of it. Not ultimate, not kind of some ultimate libertarian freedom, but within certain ability. And they're enraged to see it all come crumbling down. Again, we're, we're fast forwarding to the end here before we back up. They're enraged. Why? Because at this point, the Antichrist has been defeated and Satan has been thrown down and been bound. Their rage came. And then the 24 elders, the church cries out and says, the time has come for the dead to be judged and to give reward to your slaves, the prophets, the saints. Some people ask, which prophets? All the prophets, (laughs) the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. That is, it's time to shut it down and to deal with what has been stored up for so long. And he will judge the dead and he will reward those, he says, who fear his name, both great and small, and he will destroy those who destroy the earth. This picture of my mind is an award ceremony that after all it's been done, I know high school basketball just finished up. It's all done. And the trophies or the the plaques, the medals got handed out yesterday in Lincoln for those who won and those who got second. They were awarded for how they played and if they were on the winning team or if they were not. The small and the great. Those who did great things and scored the most points and those who didn't play a minute, they all got rewarded. You don't often only see with that, though, the reward of both. The winners and the losers. Typically, the losers just kind of slink off and you don't see them stuff the microphone in their face. 
I always find it interesting, even with famous athletes, um, they don't really care what the famous athlete says if they lose. And usually the famous athlete doesn't want to talk to them if they just lost the Super Bowl. Just walk away. They don't, they don't want to talk. They talk to the ones who win. But this focus here on judgment is seen in both places. There's a focus on those who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ. Hebrews 9, 27 says, It is appointed for a man to die once, and then comes the judgment. And there's a sense in which we understand, um, not to get into intermediate states and things, but it's to say we go to be with the Lord. But I believe we're there here, described as the 24 elders, who are also anticipating a future day and a future resurrection, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. But it's this idea of being rewarded for faithfulness that I think is helpful and motivating as you see that there is a time where we will be held account of which this implies that this ceremony, as I say, is, is coming. And his reign is where it begins and he looks and it is doled out. If you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, just to highlight one place where Paul uses similar language for believers. Why should you be motivated to look at things with spiritual eyes, to focus on that which is eternal and those things that matter most, and not simply on that which is earthly, that which is temporary, that which is immediate? I'm no different than anyone else here. I have things to do this week. I have bills to pay, and I have not lawns to mow yet, but soon. Doors to install, walls to paint. But they're all part of this world. And here, particularly the earthly tent, talking of what is temporal, the, the body, versus what is eternal. Paul begins, Second Corinthians, to make this argument that we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, which is, we know we're going to die. We have a building from God, a house not made of hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Some of you may not think I notice things, which is true. I'm actually not that observant generally, and not that observant while I'm preaching either. But uh, I did notice, and then they told me about it. Um, but there was a certain contingent, I won't name it, who, uh, who snickered when I was somewhat joking about when we went back and we looked at Noah in the 120 years. And the fact that um, it's not talking about they're going to live 120 years and then die. It's talking in 120 years, there'll be a worldwide flood. And I kind of joked that, you know, it'd be nice to live 120 years. And there was a certain contingent of mature saints that laughed and said, I don't think so. I don't want 120 years. And you won't either someday. Why? Because of this. Because the tent, the body, starts to groan. It starts to be a burden. Even with the wonderful things in which the world still reflects the goodness of God, and we even reflect His image, we age, and things get difficult. Pain. 
but we don't want to be unclothed, but we want to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. That is to say, the Holy Spirit is his promise. As people call it, it's, it's the ring. It's the engagement ring. It's the promise that this will happen. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We have good courage and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. But it's interesting. He's talking about life, death, temporal, eternal. And his focus turns that it's a therefore. This should have an implication for the way we live. We also have as our ambition, that is our desire. What do we want to happen? Whether at home or absent, we want to be pleasing to him. That's what drives us. Why do you want to be pleasing to him? Why? Because verse 10. Why? Because Revelation 11, 18. Because, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to that which he has done, whether good or bad. So then knowing the fear of the Lord and how are those who are believers described in Revelation 11, those who fear him, his prophets, his saints, we persuade men. So it's not just the way you live, but then it's how you interact with the rest of a dying world. You want to persuade men. Persuade them of the truth of God, the truth of there is a judgment and that there is a way of escape and salvation in Christ. We persuade men, but we have been made manifest to God. And I hope that we have been made manifest also in your consciences. As Paul, even in his own life, wants to have some impact in the way they think, in the way that they live. But there is a judgment, even for believers, of which um, wood, hay, and stubble is it going to be things that you invest in that burn up or things that are going to last? The judgment seat, uh, Greek, they talk, uh, typically it's called the, the bema seat of Christ. It's the test to see, did you live in a worthy manner? And it's going to be exposed. And for some, all that's left, and Paul says it, that they will enter heaven. It's not that they're going to lose their salvation. That's not true at all. But it is to say there's a way in which, but if all burns up, they, as it were, make it through, but through fire, he says, elsewhere. This ceremony should bring both soberness in the way we live because of a dying world, but also in our evangelism and in our own pursuit of Christ-likeness. That we want to be pleasing because we understand what's temporal. We understand what's eternal. And we want to do the things that matter and that please him. That should be your ultimate ambition. And Revelation should be the kind of passage that pushes us towards being pleasing to him. Desiring to, be, to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servants. Well, not only do we see the ceremony... We see this lastly, that this is related to covenant. So there have been those who talk about the all of Scripture, that it is this story of kingdom. And how does that kingdom go about it? It's the kingdom that comes through covenant. Covenant simply being, you don't have to hyper-spiritualize it. It's a word that comes from the way they would talk about contracts in the Old Testament. 
that there would be one who would make an agreement. And God has made this agreement. And of course, any agreement, any contract's only as good as the one in whom is making it. If you're a trustworthy person who has character, well, then you can trust, when you're trusting that that person will be faithful to whatever they've agreed to. In this case, you have the ultimate one who has made a covenant with his people and he's going to be faithful because he is by his nature faithful and true. Just as we saw that he is the one, um, the similar language, the verse 17, the almighty who was and who is, kind of bakes, takes you all the way back to chapter one, but also it talks about him being faithful in chapter one. That's how you can know, you can trust that this covenant of the reign of Christ will be fulfilled. That's how he's going to bring about this in real time and real place. When we celebrate, which we did just last week, the Lord's table here, communion, we are being reminded of that covenant, which was inaugurated by the shedding of his blood. But here, this uses Old Testament language. It says, verse 19, that it is the sanctuary of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And we've seen before this picture of the sanctuary of God that in Hebrews chapter 8, what do you mean a sanctuary that is in heaven? What does it look like? Well, we have some description in a way in which in the Old Testament, it was a reflection. It says, Hebrews chapter 8, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to law who serve a copy or a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle for see, he says that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. So there seems to be a reflection of this temple that is in heaven that is reflected even on earth. And of that he talks here, the sanctuary of God which is in heaven, the throne which is there in heaven, it is opened. And there it says there is the ark of which we would then say the ark that was here that Israel had was in some way a copy or a reflection of this Ark of his covenant, which appears, John sees it in his sanctuary. And with that come the loud noises we've seen over. This is a phrase repeated, repeated, repeated of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. It's the only time this phrase is used. You might be familiar and you think, this doesn't sound right, isn't it? The Ark of the Covenant. Well, normally it is, but this is the only time you see this phrase. This is the Ark of His Covenants, which perhaps is just emphasizing the nature of it, that he's emphasizing this is my sanctuary, my Ark, the Ark of His Covenants. Hebrews chapter 9 says, behind the, And behind the second veil there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, so as you're entering into the tabernacle and you're walking in, and you're getting into the center of the Holy of Holies, which only the, the high priest is allowed to go into. And there having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, which is typically how it is referred, covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And of these things we cannot now speak in detail, which he's saying because Israel was judged and they don't have one. He just has what the Old Testament says. But now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the first part of the tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year. But he does so not without taking blood, which he offers for himself for the sins of the people 
committed in ignorance. The ark was to symbolize communion with God. It's where the blood sacrifices are offered for sin and where it is the picture of God being reconciled to the nation Israel because they have offered this blood sacrifice. And of course, you look forward into then ultimately the covenant that is made through Christ's blood, which is eternal, of which this ark of the covenant and this tabernacle are simply copies or shadows of the heavenly realities of what has happened in Christ. You see of the manna, it symbolizes that God supplies their needs. He provided manna food in the wilderness and that he is sovereign, the rod that was budded of Aaron's, that he gave his law, the Ten Commandments, and a reminder that God had entered into them with this covenant, the Abrahamic covenant that was eternal. And he promised them then a new covenant of which the New Testament is clear, you and I are grafted into. So given originally to the Jews, but then as we've seen throughout Revelation, that is through them, all the nations will be blessed in that from every tribe and every nation and every tongue, they will praise the Lord. We see the reign of Christ displayed here. It's perfection. The certainty of it, it's going to happen. A reminder of when it happens, there will be an account. And accountability is wonderful if you have any level of confidence that you will be one who is rewarded. Not so great if you're sitting there worried that you will be found out. I mean, if you have been stealing money from work and the accountant comes in, you're probably sweating, right? Like, uh uh-oh, someone found it. But if you've been honest and the accountant comes in and it's going to give you a bonus, you're excited. You're going, well, to the best of my ability, and none of us are perfect, you, you have a confidence that comes in that moment. Why? Because not of what, in that case, it's a bad analogy because don't trust in what you've done, but all analogies break down. But of course, we trust in what Christ has done. And the implication of that is then we live it out because it's not just the blessing of revelation that comes from hearing the words, but it is the blessing coming from the obedience to what you have seen along with John as he carries you along through this book and this reminder and the hope that at the midpoint of this book, there's almost like this encouragement that comes that we're headed to 22 where he will reign. The kingdom of our Lord, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. Just exactly what we pray. His kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is what is going to happen here as the seventh trumpet blows and it transports us to the end to encourage us today. And it's not going to be just the end of the story where all of a sudden we're going to be sad and go, man, that was really fun. Too bad the adventure's over. No. It'll be a completion of which there'll be fulfillment and joy and then the beginning of this reign, this period of which he has promised he will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we do rejoice in this truth and the reminder of the coming victory. We know, even now, the spiritual truth, the spiritual reality that we have victory over sin and even death in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But 
as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we see now with faith. We trust you. We trust your word. We trust your character. But we also long for the day when we will see with sight. And we see these things come to fruition. And we see you reigning from your throne. And that as the church, that one day in the future, we will be there. Verse 16. And we will fall on our faces and we will worship you and we will give thanks. Because you, the Almighty who is and who was, you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen.